This is 38, written by Laylee Long Soldier. Here the sentence will be respected. I will compose each sentence with care by minding what the rules of the writing dictate. For example, all sentences will begin with capital letters. Likewise, the history of the sentence will be honored by ending each one with appropriate punctuation, such as a period or question mark, thus bringing the idea to momentary completion. You may like to know, I do not consider this a creative piece. I do not regard this as a poem, a great imagination, or a work of fiction. Also, historical events will not be dramatized for an interesting read. Therefore, I feel most responsible to the orderly sentence, conveyor of thought. That said, I will begin. You may or may not have heard about the Dakota 38. If this is the first time you've heard of it, you might wonder, what is the Dakota 38? The Dakota 38 refers to 38 Dakota men who were executed by hanging under orders from President Abraham Lincoln. To date, this is the largest legal mass, mass execution in U.S. history. The hanging took place on December 26, 1862, the day after Christmas. This was the same week that President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. In the preceding sentence, I italicize same week for emphasis. There was a movie titled Lincoln about the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. The signing of the Emancipation Proclamation was included in the film Lincoln. The hanging of the Dakota 38 was not. In any case, you might be asking, why were 38 Dakota men hung? As a side note, the past tense of hang is hung. But when referring to the capital punishment of hanging, the correct past tense is hanged. So it's possible that you're asking, why were 38 Dakota men hanged? They were hanged for the Sioux Uprising. I want to tell you about the Sioux Uprising, but I don't know where to begin. I may jump around and details will not unfold in chronological order. Keep in mind, I am not a historian, so I will recount facts as best as I can, given limited resources and understanding. Before Minnesota was a state, the Minnesota region, generally speaking, speaking was the traditional homeland for Dakota, Anishinaabeg, and Ho-Chunk people. During the 1800s, when the U.S. expanded territory, they purchased land from the Dakota people as well as the other tribes. But another way to understand that sort of purchase is Dakota leaders ceded land to the U.S. government in exchange for money or goods, but most importantly, the safety of their people. Some say that Dakota leaders did not understand the terms they were entering or they never would have agreed. Even others call the entire negotiation trickery. But to make whatever it was official and binding, the U.S. government drew up an initial treaty. This treaty was later replaced by another, more convenient treaty, and then another. I've had difficulty unraveling the terms of these treaties, given the legal speaking congressional language. As treaties were abrogated, broken, and new treaties were drafted, one after another, the new treaties often referenced old defunct treaties, and it is a muddy switchback trail to follow. Although I often feel lost on this trail, I know I am not alone. However, as best as I can put the facts together, in 1851, Dakota Territory was contained to a 12-mile by 150-mile long strip 
along the Minnesota River. But just seven years later, in 1858, the northern portion was ceded, taken, and the southern portion was, conveniently, allotted, which reduced Dakota land to a stark 10-mile tract. These amended and broken treaties are often referred to as the Minnesota treaties. The word Minnesota comes from mini, which means water, and soda, which means turbid. Synonyms for turbid include muddy, unclear, cloudy, confused, and smoky. Everything is in the language we use. For example, a treaty is essentially a contract between two sovereign nations. The U.S. treaties with the Dakota Nation were legal contracts that promised money. It could be said this money was payment for the land the Dakota ceded, for living within assigned boundaries or reservation, and for relinquishing the rights to their vast hunting territory, which in turn made Dakota people dependent on other means to survive, money. The previous sentence is circular, akin to so many aspects of history. As you may now have guessed, the money promised in the turbid trees did not make it into the hands of the Dakota people. In addition, local government traders would not offer to Indians to purchase, uh, they would not offer credit to Indians to purchase food or goods. Without money, store credit, or rights to hunt beyond their 10-mile tract of land, Dakota people began to starve. The Dakota people were starving. The Dakota people starved. In the previous sentence, the word starved does not need italics for emphasis. One should read the Dakota people starved as a straightforward and plainly stated fact. As a result, and without other options but to continue to starve, Dakota people retaliated. Dakota warriors organized, struck out, and killed settlers and traders. This revolt is called the Sioux Uprising. Eventually, the U.S. Cavalry came to Minnesota to confront the uprising. More than 1,000 Dakota people were sent to prison. As already mentioned, 38 Dakota men were subsequently hanged. After the hanging, those 1,000 Dakota prisoners were released. However, as further consequence, what remained of Dakota territory in Minnesota was dissolved, stolen. The Dakota people had no land to return to. This means they were exiled. Homeless, the Dakota people of Minnesota were re relocated, forced, onto reservations in South Dakota and Nebraska. Now, every year, a group called the Dakota 38 plus two riders conduct a memorial horse ride from Lower Brule, South Dakota to Mankato, Minnesota. The memorial riders travel 325 miles on horseback for 18 days, sometimes through sub-zero blizzards. They conclude their journey on December 26, the day of the hanging. Memorials help focus our memory on particular people or events. Often memorials come in the form of plaques, statues, or gravestones. The memorial for Dakota 38 is not an object inscribed with words, but an act. Yet I started this piece because I was interested in writing about grasses. So there's one other event to include, although it's not in chronological order, we must backtrack a little. When the Dakota people were starving, as you may remember, government traders would not extend store credit to Indians. 
One trader named Andrew Merrick is famous for his refusal to provide credit to Dakota people by saying, if they're hungry, let them eat grass. There are variations of Merrick's words, but they are all something to that effect. When settlers and traders were killed during the Sioux uprising, one of the first to be executed by the Dakota was Andrew Merrick. And when Merrick's body was found, his mouth was stuffed with grass. I am inclined to call this act by the Dakota warriors a poem. There's irony in their poem. There was no text. Real poems do not really require words. I have italicized a previous sentence to indicate inner dialogue, a revealing moment. But on second thought, the words, let them eat grass, click the gears of the poem into place. So we could also say language and word choice are crucial to the poem's work. Things are circling back again. Sometimes when in a circle, if I wish to exit, I must leap and let the body swing from the platform out to the grasses. In March, I walked down the street and planted snap peas on the trellis at the preschool where no one went to preschool anymore. At my other job, we don't talk about the future. We talk about the preferred future. In a bad week, my preferred future is to be left alone. In a good week, my preferred future is that the future comes slowly. When I graduated high school, some women at the church made me a quilt. When they asked what I wanted on it, I said stars and mostly every color, but not the color red. When they gave me the quilt, it was every color, but mostly red. There were stars on it. Snap peas are the nicest vegetable I could give you. Snap peas are expensive in the store. They don't even taste good, the peas from the store. In my preferred future, the peas were going to grow up the trellis and I would harvest them for a few weeks because my preferred future is selfish. And then the pandemic would be over and all the children would come back to school and would eat the peas and no one would know who planted them. In the actual future, which is now the past, the stay at home order ended in June and the teachers came back and pulled up my peas and planted tomatoes on the trellis. The tomatoes did not grow very well on the trellis. I know this because they are dead now. The Bible says the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. I want to eat the wild grapes I see when I walk the dog, but I'm afraid they will be sour or poison. In my preferred future, I eat the grapes. I also live. Bernie Sanders said the greatest impediment to our future is the limits we put on our imagination. Bernie Sanders will not be the next president. When I was 15, a dentist my parents' age gave me braces. The dentist said I would wear them for a year. I wore them for a year and a half. 
When I had the braces on, I went to the San Juan Islands. There are whales on the San Juan Islands. Actually, there is only a museum for whales on the San Juan Islands. The whales are in the ocean. Once outside of the museum, there was a sculpture of a whale made out of trash. The artist's point was that today, whales' bellies contain 60% trash because they suck in so much food from the ocean, which is actually just trash. In a bad week, my teeth are so set on edge that my head aches. The difference between the future and the preferred future is the difference between what is likely and what is good. I wanted the children to have the nicest vegetable no one could give them. Instead, no one gave them nothing because someone pulled up no one's plants to plant nothing. I wish the children could go to school this fall. I wish the children could do something more fantastical than going to school this fall. I wish it wouldn't kill their parents to do it. I used to think the only way out of climate change might be global pandemic. I didn't really know what to do with that thought. I still don't. Mostly in the Bible, when they say that the people say that the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, they are saying that someday the people won't say this anymore. In the Bible, they say, you say this now, but in the future, the actual future, not the preferred future, you will not say it. It will not be true anymore. The quilt with stars and the mostly red is still on my bed. My neighbor in the house where this quilt with stars is planted milkweed, milkweed for the monarch butterflies. Then she moved out. The next neighbor pulled up the milkweed to regrade the yard so her basement wouldn't flood like it was auditioning for the role of the water in Noah's Ark. The thing about monarch butterflies is that every year when they migrate, they go to exactly the same milkweed plants. When I first got my dog, I spent a lot of time wondering how I would feel in 10 years when she died. It is strange to live with something that you are supposed to outlive. Sometimes my dog gets excited and tears one of the seams in the quilt with stars on it. You could say the monarchs are pretty stupid to think everything will be exactly where you left it when you left it when you leave it for a year. The milkweed in my neighbor's yard grew back. In my preferred future, I spend a quiet night mending the quilt. In my preferred future, there are monarch butterflies. In my preferred future, there are also orca whales. They do not have trash in their bellies. In my preferred future, there are all the animals, the way in Noah's Ark there were all the animals, except the ones that weren't there. The writer Ocean Vuong, who I don't know, but I know many people who know, says that when he was a kid, he went to Baptist church and was fascinated with Noah's Ark. Ocean Vuong is a Buddhist. Ocean Vuong called Noah's Ark a story about the future. Ocean Vuong describes the plot of Noah's Ark as when the apocalypse comes, what will you put into the vessel for the future? I'm pretty sure the children are in preschool again. 
I see the cars park and I see the adults, but I don't really see the children. The funny thing about Layla's explanation a couple weeks ago that the sun will swallow the earth someday is that we'll all be long dead. The first week that I moved here, someone told me there was a big chemical spill outside of town and that in one to a hundred years, it would seep into the groundwater and the water would be undrinkable. A year ago, I asked Javen Miner what one to 100 years meant. Javen Miner studies groundwater engineering. He said studying poison is an inexact science. He said probably 17. In 17 years from a year ago, I'll be 48. You could say it's pretty stupid to think in 17 years, everything will be exactly like it was 17 years ago. In my preferred future, the water is still drinkable when I am 48. Sometimes the preferred future is a low bar. I told two friends who are not homeowners that the water will probably be poison in 17 years, but that I am optimistic. I believe late stage capitalism is still coherent enough that it will not affect my property value that much. Sometimes the preferred future is the best of two bad options. There's probably a preacher out there who will tell you the good news about the children's teeth being set on edge is that Jesus is the braces you only need to wear for a day. I think the good news about the children's teeth being set on edge is that we do matter to each other. We are interdependent. That's why Noah needed all of the animals. Sometimes your teeth are set on edge, not because your parents ate sour grapes, but because someone else's parents picked sour grapes and stuffed them down your parents' throats and then you popped out. There is most likely PFAS in the water right now. It is probably low levels. I haven't asked the whales about it. I hear they are all pacifists. Jonah did come out alive. If the whale was Jonah, we would be Nineveh. Rachel Held Evans, paraphrasing G.K. Chesterton, wrote, fairy tales do not tell us that monsters exist. They tell us monsters can be defeated. Biblical scholars will tell you Noah's Ark is not part of the apocalyptic literature. Biblical scholars have been wrong before. I don't hate Joe Biden, but I understand why my friends do. Their teeth are set on edge. In my preferred future, the children's teeth are no longer set on edge because their parents ate sour grapes. In my preferred future, the children don't need braces either. In my preferred future, every year I grow peas. The peas are not poison. It is possible salvation is not about God saving us, but God saving the animals. We are incidental. Even if it's stupid to expect everything to be exactly where you left it 17 years ago, it's perfectly reasonable to expect that there will be something good in 17 years. I keep a book on my coffee table called The Impossible Will Take a Little While. Sometimes I read it. The alternative isn't that nobody's teeth are set on edge. 
The Bible says the alternative is that everyone dies for their own sins and the teeth of everyone who eats sour grapes are set on edge. This is a very individualist outlook. In the future, if the children's teeth are set on edge, I do not want to be the braces. I want to be the anesthesiologist. I wrote a song. The words are, here comes the apocalypse. What will you put in your vessel for the future? Sometimes you just need to know monsters can be defeated. It's not a very good song. There are many not very good songs in the world. Some of them are in the future. When I first got a dog, I thought a lot about mortality. Now I think about when I will mend my quilt. I believe it's important to remember which impossible things you plan to do. It's possible Noah's Ark is a fairy tale in the Chestertonian sense. Here comes the apocalypse. What will you put in your vessel for the future? God, I have wax for teeth. Everything sets me off. I'm not really hopeless, but I'm a little bit hopeless. Like surgery that sets us back, doesn't really take. Like surgery that will come and save the knee that reshape the future. At best, I have a melancholy, a blend of danger and home, binding me to a place that might have poison water, poison grapes, but is also the home that I have. My home that is my real home, my home that is my body, my race, my class. God, help me see a preferred future. A future that might be surprising, like the coelacanth, one of the oldest creatures alive in our world that we only recently realized is still around, still swimming in the ocean. In all of our struggle, give us moments of living like the future is here. Like the monarch butterflies have every year as they return. Like trips to Washington to see new babies. Trips to the North Carolina coast to see old sisters. Trips to be with family in Goshen after our mother's passing. These and many other things, God, are tools to defeat the monster. Grand rounds with new mentors. Beautiful poems, twice in a worship service. 
give us these tools and more, we know that even a day of this work will help to give us a better world. God, we are also animals. Save us. Amen.